which is more taboo these days? Money. Sex or money? Money, money right? Yeah, because sex, everyone talks about sex now, right? I mean, people send photos of their junk to strangers these days. That's true. They won't send their <laughs> bank statement, right? That would be weird. That would be very weird. You don't want to, you definitely do not want to Snapchat your bank statement to right. somebody you met on Tinder. Right. But your junk, that's totally normal. That's okay. <laughs> Money Mostly Canadian Podcast with your host, Freep Banerjee. Welcome to Mostly Money, Mostly Canadian. I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, I'll be talking to Dev Basu, the founder and CEO of Powered by Search, an internet marketing agency. We're going to talk a little bit about what his company does, but we're also going to talk about his personal finance journey and his philosophy on managing money. Now, before I introduce Dev, I want to give a shout out to the listeners who left star ratings on iTunes. We've just passed 200 reviews, which is a nice little milestone. So thank you very much. And if you haven't done so yet, I really do appreciate you taking five seconds to leave a rating on iTunes. And if you want to take the additional time to write in a comment on top of that, that's cool. I do read every single one of them, even the bad ones. Now, on to today's guest. We're already into the whiskey. Um, Dev and I are both purveyors, um, or connoisseurs, I should say, of, uh, whiskeys. Uh, we also enjoy watches. Uh, we have a lot of things in common. Um, but allow me to introduce Dev. Um, Dev Basu is the founder and CEO of Powered by Search, an internet marketing agency whose clients have included FedEx, Remax, Rogers, Primus, Bank of Montreal, Allstate, Whirlpool, Philips, you name it, they've basically been a client of Deb's. His company has been recognized as one of Canada's top growth companies in the Profit Hot 50 rankings. He's basically a wonder kid and a superstar. Dev, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So you're a listener of the podcast, so you know how this goes, right? The first segment is basically, tell me a little bit more about Dev. Who is Dev from basically the time you graduated high school and where you got today in terms of your professional life? And then we'll get into your personal life a little bit more. But how did you get to where you are today, being the CEO and founder of such a a fast-growing company? Well, I'm a graduate of uh, University of Toronto at Scarborough. I, did, I took the BBA program over there. And in 2006, I was working for Microsoft. And that was basically my dream. I wanted to be a tech marketer, always being great at uh, my marketing classes and terrible at my accounting and finance ones. <laughs> so I was at Microsoft. I was uh, doing a co-op over there. And I didn't know anything about digital marketing. Mm-hmm. And, and how I got into it was there was a point where I was managing a portion of Microsoft.ca's website, working with uh, original equipment manufacturers or OEMs as they're known. And we had a, a different promotion for these, uh, these companies that I used to work with every month. And so these are companies like Dell, Lenovo, MDG, and so on. And it was back in the day when you have, used to have these very cryptic URLs, the long ones you can't pronounce on the phone that used to change up all the time. And if you've used SharePoint, which is a, an internet software, which is often poorly used as a website maker as well at, right. uh, at certain times, that was a conundrum. This, I used to get about 300 to 400 emails every month asking for what the URL to the latest promotion was. <laughs> and eventually I got very frustrated because it was taking up a lot of my, uh, my, the, my time in my day. And um, 
I asked my my customers at the time to go on msn.ca because Bing didn't exist at that point in right. time and go uh, search for it. Mm-hmm. And so they said, Dev, I did. I can't find it. So I said what I wasn't supposed to say. I said, Google it. <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't find it on Google either. So the bottom line was I went to a VP at uh, the, uh, the office and he said, this is a big problem. We can't find our promotions on a website that we own using a search engine that we built. Right. Uh, and she said, I agree. It's a pretty big problem. Let's go solve it. And she gave me a budget. And the budget was a high five-figure budget. We went to our creative agency who built that section of the website. And I said, we need to solve this problem. Our own search engine can't find pages that we built on our own website. And they said, we're going to get right on it. So about 90 days passed by and nothing happens. Zero results. They still can't find it. And this is about the time that I'm drawing towards the end of my co-op at Microsoft. And I went, there's an opportunity over here. If one of the world's largest tech companies has issues with getting its content found online, well, there might be something of an opportunity over here for all of the other businesses that right. need to get found. Yeah. And that's a, a short story about how I got into digital marketing. Okay, so you you were frustrated, and out of that frustration came an idea that uh, something here needs to be solved. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna come back. We're gonna circle around to Powered by Search, the company that um, ultimately all this manifested into, and talk more about that in a minute. But I want to start back with your personal finance journey. So I've known you for a while, probably around that time that you had just finished at Microsoft and uh, and we had met. We're both graduates of the the same campus at U of T and uh, we ran in, I guess, some of the same alumni circles for a while. And um, I, uh, I've always sort of been fascinated by your approach to not only business, but also your personal finance, because you always had, in my mind, you always had a plan, right? You're very focused on what you did very dedicated. And that's not something that a lot of people have, and especially not at your age at that time when you were younger. So I want to know where that came from. So so walk me back to, you know, this is your life. Tell me tell me the, the highlights of all the things that happened in your life that shaped you to have this different philosophy or this focus that a lot of people don't have. Why, why are you so different? I think it comes down to the fact that uh, effort is underrated. And I grew up uh, with immigrant work ethic. So most of my life, I grew up in India mm-hmm. and I spent about ages one through four in, in Canada. I went back to India and kind of did sort of the baseball diamond uh, of India in terms of growing up in Calcutta, Delhi, Bombay, and Bangalore. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a very middle-class family. And my approach to money has always been that it's a proxy for the value that you bring in everything that you do. So when I launched my first business in in 2009, I thought that was my first business, but I actually realized that my first business was at the age of 12. Uh, I used to trade pirated CDs in school. (laughs) They're video games, and that was my first business. Okay, okay. So you had the entrepreneurial spirit. And I didn't know about it until much later. Okay, all right. So... Um, what, what else happened? So I know that when you were younger, your, your father passed when you were how old? 12 turning 13. So, so tell me about that and how that impacted, uh, the family's financial situation and how that ultimately impacted you. Yeah. So my dad was diagnosed with ALS when I was about 10 years old. And, uh, at that age, you know, it, it felt very transformative from being a kid, um, 
at ten, at the age of 10 to suddenly going and studying encyclopedias about what this rare nerve disorder or disease really was. Right. And over the next, I would say, four to six years, um, my mom, I have to give so much credit for her everything that she's done for the family over that time. I had no idea how she really managed the finances. I was very uh, aware of the fact that, you know, the, the bank balances were dwindling because mm-hmm. nobody was working in the family at that point in time. Right. She and at was, this time, um, were you in India or Canada? I was in India at that point in time. Okay. Yes, I was I was basically in grade six. Uh, that was the last time in our family uh, my dad was working. Mm-hmm. And uh, between grade six to grade 11, basically, nobody was working in the family. So we were mm-hmm. working on just savings, basically. Right. Okay. So your father passes, your mother takes the financial reins of the household. You don't know specifically how she's managing uh, the household's finances. Was there any insurance in place that uh, your father had or anything like that? No, none whatsoever. I think he was a real daredevil in life and he he embraced it and lived it to the fullest. Um, And I've taken on some aspects of that, but it also made me very aware about the value of money Mm -hmm. and the freedoms that it affords you, the conveniences that it affords you as well. And I think where I really went with that was I wanted to be in a position in life where I never had to worry about money. I wanted it to be an enabler rather than something that constricts the ability to grow um, or, or something that can hold you back in mm-hmm. life. See, um, the reason I'm, I'm so drawn to your story about what happened um, in the household when you were younger is, as you know, I'm, I'm back in school and I'm, I'm studying, uh, to make a long story short, the value of financial advice and how do you quantify the, um, how do you measure it in the first place? And so I just completed my pilot study and right before I sent out the, the survey to a lot of people, I said, well, you know, since I'm sending this out and I'm asking people all these questions, let me throw in some other questions just out of curiosity's sake, just to see what the responses would be. And one of those questions had to do with people's subjective ratings of how financially secure the household was that they grew up in. And what I found was that the more financially insecure a household was that someone grew up in, the more financially cognizant people were later on in life, the more serious they took their money. And it kind of fits, right? If something bad has happened to you, that sticks with you. That becomes something that you fixate on, something that if you don't want it to happen again, you go out of your to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Similar to, uh, you know, with a lot of people who get really fit later on in life, it's usually after they've hit rock bottom, right? And I'm not even talking about morbidly obese. I'm talking like, you know, everyone on January 1st after the holiday season, you know, you look down and, you know, you see less of your toes than you did before the holiday season. You're like, oh man, this is, this is horrible. Now I'm motivated to do something about that. So that, 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 that negative, um, impact, um, changes the way people look and and how serious they are about money. So you've kind of, um, gone 180 from not knowing much about money, um, having a household that was uh, no one working, not a lot of stability financially, to now you are sort of the master of your your finances. So tell me more about the journey. So yes, you decided that this is something that you wanted to avoid. It became a goal of yours. So how did you do that? How did you educate yourself? How did you learn to do the things that you're doing? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, 
and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I said that, you know, effort is is often very underrated. So uh, one of the things that I still pursue every single day is being a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books. You listen to this podcast, I right? listen to this podcast as well. Who's and, my last guest? Uh, Ras- Ron Cass? Cass? Randy Cass. Randy yeah. Cass. Hey, there you go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you pass. There you go. <laughs> So I think being a lifelong learner and being able to always be a student is what's really enabled me to succeed in life mm-hmm. um, to whatever level I have thus far. And and then really applying those learnings and being able to execute. A lot of people will just learn and study and hope to use those those skills someday. And for me, it's about how do I use it right now? Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason to wait. Successful people, I think one of the, the hallmarks of what makes them successful has to do with the ability to execute and then to learn off that and iterate from there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, okay, so learning obviously putting in effort, great. But what did you learn? Where did you learn it? How did you find out about how to make? Or is it an ongoing trial and error process? Talk to me about that aspect of it. Right. So I think that you know a, a lot of people come into their thought process around money with lots of limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. I'm the only entrepreneur in my family, so um, every one of my other family members who are accomplished are either scientists or doctors or engineers and computer science and, and so on. So, you do not fit the stereotypical Indian family. I, at all. I, I do not. Geez. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, so I'm someone of the black sheep, and I remember going back to see my family in 2010 in India, and some of them were still asking, "Why don't you have a job?" <laughs> and, and I said, "It's because I provide them to people." now. I'm actually creating jobs rather than seeking ones. And uh, and that's an ex- incredibly empowering type of experience. Uh, I think I learned a lot of it by studying and reading and and then looking at my own finances and living on a, a the, sort of the maxim of rather than trying to constrain and save every single penny, I was looking for how to, to maximize income. And I found out that if you happen to be in the top sort of 5 to 10% of whatever it is you do in your life, there's a market, there's a niche audience that wants what you have to offer. And you can command a premium rate for doing that as well. And if mm-hmm. you do that, you can create 10x, basically, the amount of, of wealth by following those types of strategies than by trying to penny pinch or save money on lattes. Okay, so so that I agree with. So your earning potential is higher if you are at the top of your field. I think, you know, not an earth-shattering um, proposition, but... What does that translate into, into how you deal with a financial service? So you're really good at what you do. And so you've accumulated a certain amount of wealth that needs to be managed. Mm -hmm. And so you don't manage it yourself. You delegate that. And how do you feel about the financial service? Like, how do you find the people who are the tops in their field? Because I'm assuming that's what you would gravitate to, right? Mm -hmm. Because Well, all right. So maybe I'm starting to put uh, words into your mouth. So tell me what your thoughts are on the financial services in general as someone who has done well for themselves and was looking for advice. Tell me about that. I found that most of my experiences dealing with financial advisors has been lackluster. 
in terms of they haven't been quite as directive enough or guiding in the same way that I endeavor to be a personal pathfinder for my clients in, in terms of what they want to do with their marketing, what they want to achieve out of it. Uh, most of my experiences have been around self-education with validation or verification with an expert. And uh, and so it's basically always meant that I've, I've had to educate myself and then ask a lot of good questions. Right. So from your perspective, if you want to get the most out of what the financial services has to offer. You have to be somewhat empowered, enlightened already. Yeah, I think that you know the uh, there's so much room for growth in financial literacy, especially for Canadians. We uh, we did a project once with a bank to actually assess the amount of financial literacy that Canadians have, and what we found is that Canadians think about wealth in a completely different way than Americans do. Oh. In fact, there's a Canadian like you know if, if you are a high net worth investor in Canada, you have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in investable assets. Most of those people. And with the, such a high amount of immigrants and or a number of immigrants in Canada don't think of themselves as being wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so they often don't think that they're eligible or that they deserve to walk into a bank um, or into a financial institution and actually ask for an advisor. They'd still much rather deal with a teller. Really? Yeah. I don't know. That's fascinating because I know that there are differences between Canadian and, and uh, American financial consumers, but that one was uh, kind of interesting. I know there's a lot of apathy I found with can- Canadian financial consumers versus American consumers in general, but especially uh, when it comes to the financial service. And I don't know if that is something that is innate to the consumer or if this is a result of the way that the financial services has sort of come to be where we have a lot of costs, which incidentally starting this year, I don't know if you know this, this is like inside baseball stuff now, but there's this um, um, regulatory change that's coming about phase three of what's called CRM two. I know. So boring. I heard Um, about it on this this podcast, I think. Oh yeah, Yeah. probably. Um, And anyways, there's heightened disclosure requirements for costs and investment performance. And so now the, 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 timeline for this to to start rolling out is July 15, 2016. And you've got basically a year to put out this annual report now if you're a financial services institution, which means that some people may not get it till July 14, 2017, <laughs> <laughs> right, to run down the clock. But it's going to, for the first time, uh, show people some costs that they may not have been cognizant that they have been paying. And for a lot of people, there is certainly going to be sticker shock. I think a lot of people don't realize you know, if you're investing over, you know, 50, 100,000 bucks, you could easily be paying a thousand, two thousand $2,000 per year. And you may not have realized that before. And so there's this, uh, a lot of change afoot. Oh, right? totally. And I think the, the bigger aspect of that is people don't realize how much fees can eat away yeah. at their, their potential earnings over the long game, right? Over 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, we see things framed in terms of a percentage and you say, oh, what's your cost? Oh, it's two and a half percent per year. Oh, two and a half percent. That's nothing. And you compound that over, uh, you know, 25 years and that ends up being like, I don't know, 35 to 40%, something around that range. Don't quote me on that, but it's around there of lost potential wealth had you not had that fee, right? So when you state it in dollar term, which is now going to be the standard, the regulatory requirement, a lot of people say, oh, that two and a half percent doesn't sound so small anymore when you phrase it in terms of dollars and cents where it's a couple grand for, you know, a fifty to $100,000 portfolio. It's all uh, about context. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you deal with uh, the financial services and as a consumer, do you feel that there's a good delineation between a financial salesperson and a true professional financial advisor? 
No. Okay. <laughs> so tell me about that. Well, I'll tell you what. My mom's going in to renegotiate her mortgage mm-hmm. and she's been offered a rate and she has scarcity about that rate being locked in for only a certain period of time. And it's at a, it's at a, it's at a bank branch that is far away from us. We live downtown now and she has to go back to Scarborough to be able to go transact with this branch. And I'm trying to explain the difference that the, the person who's actually selling her this mortgage will get a commission. Right. And that's why they don't want you dealing with it downtown town branch. Right. And so she's getting a whole bunch of different reasons as to why she has to go to the East end to be able to close this transaction. Interesting. So even in terms of that level of disclosure, the disclosure that is being provided, I think there's a certain level of ambiguity with it that plays on the lack of financial literacy that most Canadians have. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. I think, um, there was a study, a secret shopper study done by, uh, I think it was a joint program between the MFDA and the OSC. So again, two self-regulatory organizations in Canada. Basically what they did was they sent people undercover to pose as financial consumers. And they ended up with, uh, for one part of the study, 88 different secret shops, I believe, validated um, secret shops. And of those 88 visits, uh, of all the financial advisors that they sat down with, I believe there was 48 unique business titles of the people on the other end of the desk. So, you know, one person is a certified senior advisor. Another is, uh, holds himself out as, um, I don't know, I specialize in millennials or I'm a financial advisor. Or I'm a mutual fund sales rep or I'm a portfolio manager. Or I'm an investment representative, like so many different titles. And the problem is, I think the average person, when they walk into any type of financial institution and they say, I want a financial advisor, they assume that whoever you put in front of them is basically, that's all there is out there. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's uniform, it's ubiquitous, but really from the industry insider's perspective, looking outward, there's such a huge variation in the quality and um, quality of advice that, uh, that you get and the different registration requirements that you get. And it seems like it's, it seems like it's right for this to change. And I think we're starting to see that as millennials are more focused on transparency and honesty and all this stuff and forthrightness, they're starting to demand more. And so that coupled with this regulatory changes, I think we're going to start to see a lot of changes. And so you as a millennial, um, how do you feel about uh, robo-advisors? I feel overall good about it because I think the business logic around the investing is something that is uh, is more transparent. You can look at the actual, you know, Harvard papers or whatever they're using to, mm-hmm. for their portfolio methodology. Um, I think that one of the things that it really does, which uh, makes people invest, is it gets them into the mode of thinking with simplicity. Mm-hmm. So. I'm going to invest my money. I'm going to invest it under this particular model. I'm going to set up an automatic um, deduction plan. And away we go. And, and personally, I do work with uh, Wealthsimple. And I know that you've had Michael Katchen on the on yes. the, uh, the podcast before. Mm-hmm. So I think they're doing pretty good things in this industry. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, I think one of the the appeals, again, to millennials, although I should point out as many if not all the CEOs of the different robo-advisors that I've had on here will point out, it's not targeted specifically just to millennials. In fact, they're seeing that people um, who fit the Gen X and Boomer demographic are also um, starting to uh, migrate over to a robo-advisory platform. And I think for them, it's probably when they see the the transparency on costs, because a lot of people have sort of figured this stuff out on their own. And they're saying, okay, well, I can use a robo-advisor and cut my costs in half or more 
And that, you know, translates to thousands of dollars per year. So if you're somewhat enlightened already, you're probably migrating already. If you're you're savvier and you know about what like tax loss harvesting basically is, and you know that you can't do that automatically by investing into ETFs directly, Mm -hmm. then yeah, absolutely. You can see the the appeal over there. I think for for millennials, it just happens to be a, a case of ease of use and simplicity and the user experience. Because I think that financial institutions have a long way to go to improve user experience of just getting past some of the friction of opening an account, of funding account, of like transferring funds from your main FI to uh, an investment account, for example. Right. So is this um, uh, maybe one of the reasons that we see growth with with the robo-advisory platform for millennials? Because this is the millennials form of apathy. You know, they don't want to go in and spend time talking to a salesperson or financial advisor, whatever you want to call them, um, and and go through that process when they can just, you know, swipe, uh, tap, set up, get onboarded in a few minutes in some cases. Absolutely. Is it just about friction for them? I think it's just, it's friction. It's also the attention economy, right? I mean, who has a time to book an appointment and walk into a bank and talk to somebody who's going to read <laughs> off a script and then give you an index of whatever's going to score them the, the highest commission? Uh, and I think that millennials just tend to be more empowered in terms of seeking out information and then being able to make uh, choices around that. Sometimes they're not always the best choices necessarily, depending on where they are in their life and what they're expecting out of their, their goals. Right. Uh, but that being said, for the, I would say for the average um, overall robo-investing services, whether that's Wealthsimple or some of the ones in the States, for example, uh, I think they offer choices that did not exist for that grade of customer or consumer before. Right. And one of the, the contentions I have is that if you're going to use a robo-advisor, you have to be somewhat self-aware. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things like in, 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 in the studies that I'm doing now is, is how do you quantify the value of someone getting you to save for the first time? So imagine you're going about your life. You're not serious about retirement or goal planning or anything like that. You're just paying your bills. You're living paycheck to paycheck, whatever. There have been a lot of people that have only started to save for short, medium, and long-term goals because someone, a salesperson, who had a vested interest, came along and said, you need to save for the future for X, Y, Z. So even though there is that sort of structural conflict of interest that has always existed where most advisors are paid on quotas, uh, commissions, and what have you, they do have provide they have provided value to a lot of people who may never have started down that path in the first place. So now let's tie this back to millennials in general. So you employ people, including millennials. They don't all think the way that you do about personal finances, about money management, uh, the focus that they have with all things money. Where are they going to get financial advice if they, I'm presuming, are not necessarily going out and seeking it or valuing it yet at this stage in their life? Well, personally, I think that I have a personal responsibility as a leader in the company to bring that advice to them. So at least for employees at Powered by Search, including inviting you know folks like yourself yeah. um, into the office and talking about just how to think about money, because it's such a taboo topic. It's one of those things that people just don't want to talk about. It's, it's right up there with sex. So, OK, you know? so is it which is more taboo these days? Money. Sex or money? Money, money right? Yeah, because sex, everyone talks about sex now, right? I mean, people send Photos of their junk to strangers these days. That's true. You won't send their bank statement, right? That would be weird. That would be very weird. You don't want. You definitely do not want to Snapchat your bank statement to right. somebody you met on Tinder. Right. But your junk, that's totally normal. 
That's okay <laughs> for some people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Some people, not us necessarily. Anyways, um, off topic. So, um, so again, going back to these millennials, so you feel that you have a responsibility, um, which I think a lot of employers do. And obviously if you have studies have shown that if you have employees who are not struggling financially, they're more productive, right? Absolutely. So there's an interest for you to do that. It's the right thing to do as well. Not all employers are going to maybe take it as seriously as you do and have workshops and whatnot. So um, as a Dev alluded to, I have been into Powered by Search and gave a free workshop, no agenda, nothing to sell, just because I'm a friend of Dev's. And he asked me to give his employees a little lunch and learn as part of an ongoing benefit, I guess, for, for your employees, right? But I also know that uh, you know, as an employer, things have changed. So employers 20, 30 years ago, they had defined benefit pension plans. They mm-hmm. put a lot of money into it. That's sort of seen a trend where it went from defined benefit to defined contribution. So now it wasn't a guaranteed amount till the day you died. Now it was basically like um, an administered savings plan where what you end up at, at retirement may or may not last your entire your entire retirement. And now you've got employers who say, no, nah, we're not even going to do that either. You're basically on your own. So there is less and less support in general for people to save for retirement. Part of the reason maybe why we've seen an expansion of the CPP. So again, for these millennials, what do they do? Where do they get this advice if we're going to a more of an automated future when it comes to advice in general? Or is it a problem that uh, is going to become a bigger one? I think it might become a bigger one, but I think the the opportunity for financial institutions, uh, whether robo-advisors or otherwise, is to create the type of content that in a manner that millennials will like consuming mm-hmm. to educate them and then just unleash it on the web. I mean, the internet's one of the most powerful mediums we have uh, in the last 15 to 20 years. And with information being so plentiful, I think the, uh, the FIs have almost a responsibility for the next generation of their customers to make sure that this content is findable, uh, that it's, it's value added basically, and that it's guiding. That's one of the biggest things that we found when we were working with uh, the bank that I was talking about, that there is uh, financial you know, literacy information out there that is accessible. Unfortunately, it's not guiding. It's like Investopedia. It's right. textbook stuff. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you what to do with it next. Okay. So I'm going to circle back to this next question, which is using your internet marketing genius hat how do the financial services uh, score in terms of how they're doing right now in terms of marketing to the next generation? So we'll get back to that. But in order to answer that, let's talk a little bit more about Powered by Search and what it is exactly that you do for a living that you are so good at. Um, so you've got tons of awards. Um, so let's go back to you've, you've finished at Microsoft and you've decided that, you know, I want to uh, solve this problem. So let's pick up from that point and tell me the journey from that point. So you just finished your internship to starting Powered by Search. So you mentioned frustration. Let's start with that. So I've always had massive change in my life that comes from being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. So I had this frustration and out of it came curiosity and curiosity turned into opportunity. And what I did was I never envisioned actually starting a company, to be honest. I thought I would just go out on my own for a summer at this point of time. I started a blog that's now defunct. It used to be called Daily Moolah. Yes, I know. Branding not on point. (laughs) Uh, And what I was doing is I was basically using this as a journal on how to make money online, which was a big topic back in 2007-ish timeframe. Sure, yeah. And I was learning about things like SEO, or also known as search engine optimization. I was learning about paid search. Um, back then, 
then you had ClickBank, which is still one of the largest marketplaces in the world for affiliate marketing yep. and information products. So I started basically becoming an, an affiliate for information products. I started going into selling physical book goods like on uh, Commission Junction mm-hmm. and on a bunch of other networks. And I started getting to a point where I was making a good living for myself, but I didn't have a company at this point in time. And then I had a friend of a friend contact me and say, hey, can you get my florist shop on Google? And then I went, I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. So you're going to pay me to help you get on Google? And they said, yeah. And, and, and so we had a contract. And that contract was, at this point of time, lower than what I charge for an hour of my time <laughs> for an entire month. Holy um, smokes. And so it's really changed since then. So I started offering consulting services in addition to my affiliate marketing business. I just thought the affiliate marketing business was not a way to leave a legacy. Uh, but with what I was doing to help other people, I felt much more fulfilled being able to do that, actually generating real value for the types of products and services that you and I buy every single day mm-hmm. in, in, our, in the way we consider and find services and then go about you know purchasing them. And that led into uh, another agency in the city contacting me and saying, hey, there's a, a dearth of talent really out here. Uh, why don't you come and work for us? And so I went in. I didn't even have a car at that point in time. I bought a car to work at this agency. <laughs> and, uh, and that started off where I went over there, started working with a number of larger brands. Then I was invited to start a, an SEO team for a foreign exchange trading company in downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, a Yellow Pages affiliate asked me to start an agency within their agency. What's Yellow Pages? Uh, oh, they're these <laughs> things you use to stack. You know, uh, They're good as a door holder, right? Uh, which I actually have photos of on Twitter, yeah. people using the yellow pages as a door holder. But this was actually the problem. They, they invited me in because on a mass basis, consumers were no longer using the actual yellow pages books. The advertisers were slowly thinking about moving their funds away from print into online because it was much more trackable, much more measurable, mm-hmm. and it offered a better ROI. And so rather than losing those customers to a completely different agency, they said, why not just start one within ours? And so I went from essentially becoming a consultant um, working for myself into becoming an intrapreneur. And so I was working on somebody else's dime, but I had a lot of freedom. And at the age of 19, I, I mean, I have no idea why these people employed me and, and put their trust in me. <laughs> but I, I, I learned so much by being able to build that agency up for about a year and a half to two years. And then on the last day of um, my finals at, at U of T. I was at a conference called Search Engine Strategy speaking in Chicago. And I came back to Toronto about six o'clock in the morning. The exam was at 9, 9 a.m. After the exam at around 1 p.m. And after having had a lunch, I incorporated Powered by Search. So that's basically the story. <laughs> wow. So um, that, uh, for, okay, the first thing I want to pick up on there was you started and built up an agency at the age of 19. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's abnormal. You know that, right? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just want you to acknowledge that you are very abnormal and in a good way. I, I, I think that's absolutely fantastic. So was it still at the age of 19 when you incorporated Power by Search? I think, yeah, it was either 19 or 20. So it was in 20. October 2009. Okay. So you incorporate Power by Search. You're the CEO and the janitor. You're everything, right? You're the everything. one sole employee. Uh, and employer. Um, what happened after that? Was there some hockey stick moment or was it a slow and gradual progression to increasing revenues and employees? It was hockey stick in the first 90 days. So I went from working <laughs> at home and I think- You don't our, like to wait for anything, do you? 
why wait? <laughs> why wait when you can have it right now? Right. <laughs> uh, so it went from, I think, zero 90 days working at home. I was working in my condo solarium. And I, I tell the story in one of our, we do a talk every, uh, every month called Inbound Marketing Toronto at our office. And a couple of months ago, I was telling the story about how Powered by Search was built and had a photo of this little 50 square foot space that was our solarium. I still have the original desk in a locker. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and then, then I had to go about getting some office space because I wanted to seem legitimate. <laughs> and and so I wanted to get the space. I think we we maybe had rented out 500 square feet in North York in this nondescript sort of building that nobody would want to go to. Mm-hmm. And in the first month, our landlord said he's leaving the country. And so we either had to leave or to assume the entire lease. So <laughs> took a, a sort of ballsy risk and assumed the entire lease for about a 1,500 square foot space at that point. Okay. So you went from 500 square feet to 1,500 square feet. Because you didn't want to move. Yeah. <laughs> okay. When I commit, I commit. <laughs> right. And at that time, you were still just yourself? One employee. Well, so I had one more employee at that point in time. And by, I think, month five, I had a third employee. Okay. And how did you land these, um, you know, Fortune 500 clients? You know, how did you land FedEx? How did you land Philips? Like, how does that happen? So I'll tell you the story about Remax, actually, because that was our first large client and they still are a client now, you know, close to seven and a half years later. So I was, um, I I launched the company, I was using Twitter and their director of growth basically contacted me and said, Hey, we have this, uh, this little conference in a couple of days. And I noticed that you happen to know a few things about the the Twitters and the Facebooks. (laughs) And uh, do you want to maybe come in and talk to talk about that type of stuff? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And it turned out to be a conference with a thousand realtors. So that was my first time being in front of a thousand people on stage. And I had three days to prepare. And it was about how to generate leads using social media as a realtor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the YouTube video is still up there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was also the first time I actually charged for, for speaking. Oh, okay. Okay. And do you use an agency or did you come up with your own fees? I came up with my, with my own fee for that, but since then I've been working with an agency. Okay. Okay. All right. So you do this talk to a thousand realtors and what happened? Uh, it, it was a land rush right after. So I, I do the talk and the CEO of the company is approaching me after saying, we need you to do this for us. Uh, and, you know, they were very obsessed with the Twitters and the Facebooks at that point in time. <laughs> and I said, but have you heard of the Googles? <laughs> you know, the Googles are pretty much where people look for buying real estate. Right. And they said, yeah, we kind of know that. I mean, we do, there's this, uh, this site called MLS and people keep Googling that. But we want them to Google Remax or we want them to, you know, see us when people are looking for Toronto real estate or Toronto condos. And sure. I said, hey, you know what? I can help with that. Right. And so as a company with maybe about four or five people at that point in time, they were our, our first sort of big fish client. Okay. So, so tell me a little bit more about this. So, you know, I would say 10 years ago when I had my blog that I was writing to every day, I would thirst for having more people come and have higher traffic and, and what have you. Where does my, all my money go.com. That's right. Yeah. It's still, it still actually exists online. I, uh, my posting frequency went down from five times a week to about five times every two years is what I'm at right now. But uh, there's still a repository of uh, relatively good information there. Um, but of course, I wanted to drive traffic. And of course, corporations want to drive more traffic to their websites, generate leads, convert them into sales and what have you. So how does that happen? So what are the tools that you use? Um, what's in your toolkit? If a company comes to you and says, all right, we've got a website, uh, but we need more people coming here and we need to convert them. Tell me what it is that you do. 
Right. So we're in the business of helping our clients find and keep their best customers. Mm -hmm. And we do that through digital marketing, which evolves into a bunch of different platforms. One of the ones that um, is very popular is paid search. So if you've heard of Google AdWords or Facebook ads, we're very good at that. We're a Google Premier partner. And the other thing that we do is a channel known as search engine optimization. And that's being able to get found in Google on the organic results or the non-paid results. So you've got organic search and and paid paid search. search. That's right. Okay. And so, and you do both. We do both. Okay. So what are the things that you do in either? Like, for example, a client comes to you and say, we've got, for argument's sake, hundred grand that we want to spend uh, to increase our conversions and leads and all that stuff. How do you, what do you do with that money? Right. So we look at what their goals are and the time frame that they want to meet those particular goals. And most of our clients come to us for specifically customer acquisitions. So they either have a business model where they need to acquire a large volume of high quality leads in a short period of time, or they have a model where they can transact online, such as e-commerce, and they can track through where traffic can convert into a sale immediately. And so what we'll look at is, are you wanting to play the long game Or do you have a short-term result that you need to achieve? If the result is something that's short-term, you need to be able to, I mean, look, guys, we're six months into the year right now. If you are tracking behind on your goals for for 2016, you probably want to think about how you're going to make up that number for the next six months leading up to the holidays. And so if you were to come to us right now, we'd probably say, you probably need an aggressive paid search program to get in front of as many qualified buyers as possible. The way we think about that is in three different phases of traffic. You've got cold, warm, and hot traffic. And cold traffic are people that have never really heard of your brand. You're not in their consideration set. You have to start establishing a relationship with these people to warm them up. Warm traffic has essentially visited your website before, and now they're considering you and your competition. And then hot traffic are people that basically have visited your site, visited some key pages like your testimonials page or your pricing page or services page, maybe your demo or consultation page. And at that point of time, they still haven't converted. What we'll do is we'll look at that and go, we'll either use something like Google AdWords or Facebook ads, for example, to get in front of the right consumer at the right time, in the right place. And so something like paid search gives you a ton of control in being able to do that. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, I don't know about you, Preet, but I would say that about seven out of 10 people will click on organic search results Mm -hmm. and only three will click on paid search. Right. And the primary reason behind that is consumer psychology. People love to buy, but they do do not like being sold. And uh, there's a, a higher degree of confidence in organic search results. And that's why they get way more clicks. Okay. Organic search breaks up into a couple of key factors. And so we've been part of a a study known as a search engine ranking factor study for about six or seven years now. It's run by a company called Moz based out of Seattle. Mm -hmm. It's arguably the world's experts in search getting together and hobnobbing about what makes Google and other search engines tick in terms Mm -hmm. of their algorithm. And that's MOZ, right? MOZ, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of them. So the the search engine algorithm is a little bit like the KFC recipe or Coke, for example. Nobody really knows what goes into it. But by using empirical testing and trying to back out the algorithm, reverse engineer it, you can figure out what some of those factors are. But in 10 years, three factors haven't changed. It comes down to content, which is a no-brainer. I mean, we talk about content marketing a lot. Sure. We talk about authority and we talk about trust. So in essentially, you have to have the best content, which are essentially answers to the questions that your clients, potential customers might be asking. Then you have to have Trust, and in the sense that your site itself and the neighborhood that it's in, other websites linking to yours must be trustworthy. 
And then you have to have authority. Authority is a measure of popularity. It essentially means if you are, let's say, a financial institution and you've published a guide on mortgages, for example, or Canadian house buying, then you need to have other authoritative websites either mention you or link to you for Google to feel like they have a vote of credibility that says that your piece of content is the best game in town. Link juice, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. I uh, Someone explained it to me a long time ago uh, when trying to figure out, you know, how do you look more important in an organic Google search. And it comes down to not only who's linking to you, like that's part of it, but also, um, you know, number of links. But if, if for example, uh, I don't know, what's a big uh, website in the world? Uh, let's say Time Magazine or the Globe and Mail links to you. That's worth a lot more than uh, 100 you know, websites with five users linking to you or whatever. Absolutely. Right? Okay, so... Um, there's the content part and, and do you focus on helping people create that content or you just say you need to come up with something great. And once you do, let us know and we'll execute a strategy for you. No companies come to us for the whole nine yards, right from strategy and competitive research, all the way to content creation, promotion, analytics, and and iteration after that. And so this is still, to me, it's kind of like, it feels like the wild west. I'm sure for you, it's like, I know this like the back of my hand because that's what you do. But when it comes to online commerce, marketing and what have you, do you find that there's a lot of companies, especially the big ones that have been established for a long time, they've got, you know, a guy in the corner offers the chief marketing officers have been doing this for 30 years. He's like, no, 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 we need to do print ads, right? And and you have to come in. Do you have to change their minds too? And what are... um what are the successes that you're seeing when you go in and you say, okay, you need to take what you've been doing, throw it out, and do it a different way for the internet generation? Like, what kind of results do people see with when engaging someone who specializes in internet marketing? Well, look, there's a lot of fragmentation in the market, and it's very easy to be labeled as an expert. And anybody right. can really call themselves an expert. You have to have the track record to be able to differentiate yourself. Yes, And I think that... From an education standpoint, education is one of those table stakes things that an agency or a consultant should be doing because educated clients are empowered clients that make better decisions, end up having a higher lifetime value, and it's a win-win-win proposition all around. Uh, what we see in terms of, of return on investment is typically between 5x to 15x in terms of the ROI that our clients see for every dollar that they invest, they see about 5 to $15 paid back to them. And in terms of how big the channel really is, I mean, last year we transacted probably over $500 million worth of revenue um, in demand generation through both SEO and paid search, mm-hmm. as well as conversion rate optimization. I think a lot of people get too tied up in being able to get more traffic. And I mean, you have to really start thinking for some of the larger brands out there, what is the marginal value of getting another million visitors per month? Right. Or would you rather focus on the fact that 97% of people who visit websites do not buy, they never come back. And so marketers obsess, both internally and in-house as well as in, at agencies, they obsess about making that 3% 3.2 or 3.5%. And we tend to take a much more contrarian view on that and go, what about the other 97% that's leaving? Why are they leaving? Mm-hmm. What kind of friction is causing them to leave? Uh, what answers were they seeking that they did not receive when they hit your your landing pages right. that is making them turn, turn away from your brand? And what kind of consumer impact is that causing? You know, What does that cause... Um, 
in terms of effect to your net promoter score or their confidence in your brand. And you really have an opportunity as a brand to be able to figure out why these people are leaving. And that gives you a data-driven um, point in or a yardstick to be able to improve your content, to be able to improve your user experience. And if you did that, you'd be able to win. And it's one of the, the best ways to win in the market. So rather than getting more traffic, why not just deliver better user experience? Interesting. So now I'm going to circle back to the question that I left with, which is for the millennials dealing with financial services, if you were to tell the financial services, uh, you know, here are the things that you need to do differently for this generation, if you want to acquire them or retain them, what would those things be? I would say the number one thing that financial institutions can do is provide a guiding user experience to their customers. From the, and you know, there's a, an old acronym, uh, attention, interest, desire, and action. It's a copywriting formula, but it works really well when in this attention economy, you have to do something special and compelling to grab somebody's attention. Right. Then you need to actually lead them to interest. Then you need to, to evoke desire to get them to take that call to action. And so most of the times, if you look at the average FI's website, you see a large navigation bar. You see a lot of pop-up banners. Mm -hmm. You see that scrolling carousel, and then you see lots and lots of buttons. And so there's this concept known as attention ratio, which is basically you have no idea where to focus. And we've done these types of user experience studies where there's something known as a five-second test, which is essentially you show an average consumer that fits sort of the buying demographic a website for five seconds, and then the screen goes dark. And you have to ask them, what do you remember about this website? And most of the time, all they can really remember is lots of buttons and perhaps the primary colors of the brand. (laughs) And if you ask them, what's the one thing that this particular brand wants you to do on this website? They're like, I have no idea Mm -hmm. because they're going to lead me down the path of a checking account, savings account, credit cards, mortgages, investing, waterhouse. What's that? I don't even know if that's supposed to be for me or not. Right. Very interesting. All right. So um, for all the uh, the bank CMOs that are uh, listening um, and anyone who needs help with search, um, here is your opportunity. 60 seconds, two minutes, whatever you want. I don't care. I mean, I'm half in the bag at this point with this whiskey. <laughs> and I'm finished mine. I need a refill. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Take your, take your pick. Um, what are you going to try next, actually? I'm going to have the Nikka because uh, that's always kind of hard to find in in Canada, I find. Yeah, I picked that up in the States. Um, so anyways, back on... I. I I totally am inebriated at this point. Um, (laughs) So you've got two minutes to give yourself an advertisement to anyone who's listening. Have at her. So here's my my pitch. Um, Most of marketing is very fragmented. There's more marketing tech, more Marcom vendors out there than ever before. And so to kind of cut through the fluff and and to cut through the confusion and bring you to a place of clarity, we've been creating a framework called predictable growth. Because when we were looking, and much like finance, nobody likes volatility in how their investments basically go. And in in similar fashion, we found that whether we're talking to companies that don't work with us or the ones that in fact do, none of them want to have that volatility in being busy one month if you're a small business or having volatility in lead volume or sales month to month. They want nice predictable growth. That's sort of 
I would say between 25 to 45 degree curve that it's got a nice curve basically to it. And so we were looking at this and we actually came up with a framework known as the predictable growth formula. It's got five pillars basically. The first pillar is platform. And a lot of the times the brands we work with, their platforms, i.e. their content management systems, enterprise content management platforms are poorly configured. They absolutely cannot be found in search. They're hard to work with and they do not place control into the marketer's hands. So if there's an IT team that you continuously tussle with, you are probably a victim of having a poor, a poor platform. The second is a product. And the product has to do with the message that you're trying to deliver to your audience. And there's a concept that we frequently come back to known as preeminent positioning. How do you think about being the the choice, the, the top choice in your consumer's mind in everything that you have to write in terms of your message. Um, the, la- the third one is uh, promotion. So what kinds of channels are you going to pick to be able to get in front of the right person at the right place at the right time? The fourth one is people. And the people have to has to do with your audience. And there's if you're trying to market to everyone, you're going to engage no one. So really being able to think about the uh, the theory that Kevin Kelly often talks about, 1,000 true fans, which has to do with being able to market and basically deliver a, a, a unique and a stellar user experience for just one person before trying to scale it to tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands. So you want to think about your, your people. And the last one is performance, which is being able to have the right key performance indicators to uh, to be able to optimize and iterate against the success factors that you might consider in your program. So all of this we've put together into a, a framework known as the predictable growth canvas. And think of it almost as your napkin marketing plan. And what we find is most brands will get, you know, head first into SEO or at paid search or conversion rate optimization on a very tactical basis. But this allows you to really evaluate your brand at a 50,000 foot level understand where the gaps really are and be able to explain that to all levels of your marketing organization on a one-pager plan. And what we do is we now take this particular plan that everybody signs off on and we expand it into roadmaps and those roadmaps and lead into projects that can look at sharpshooting. We don't really believe in the spray and pray approach mm-hmm. of marketing. Uh, we believe in being a sniper when it comes to, to marketing opportunities. And this allows you to look at underservice markets, gaps in a competitive environment, and then go into that market and simply dominate. All right. And if people want to learn more, where do they find you online? You can find me at at Dev Basu on Twitter or the Twitters, or I'm on LinkedIn as well. If you just search Dev Basu, you can find me online at poweredbysearch.com. And if you're interested in some personal pursuits, you can check out my TEDx talk called uh, How to Eliminate Limiting Beliefs. If you just search the YouTubes and uh, and or you can go to devbasu.com where I I blog about uh, productivity, eliminating limiting beliefs and behavioral change. Very cool. And are you on the Snapchats? I am on the Snapchats, but I do not know how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. All right. Well, Dev, thank you very much for being on the show. And to my faithful listeners, if you enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a rating. It literally takes a few seconds, but means a lot for me. And it helps me secure great guests like Dev. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.